Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our guest for the third time on this show is Claire Sullentrop, SaaS marketing and growth advisor and co-founder of Forget the Funnel. And we're going to talk about the new marketing in these hard times when the world is collapsing. This episode is brought to you by UserList, a lifecycle messaging tool for your SaaS product. At UserList, our mission is to make your founder journey more enjoyable and less overwhelming. That's why we built an email automation tool that does exactly what you need. No more, no less. Manage your users, segment them, and get in touch throughout their journey, all based on their behavior. Try UserList free whenever you're ready at userlist.com. Before we dive into today's episode, I'd love you to take five minutes of your time and take our listener survey. The podcast just turned six years old a few weeks ago, and we'd love to collect some of your feedback and learn how to make this show better. Please head over to uibreakfast.com survey and answer a few questions about your listener experience. That's uibreakfast.com survey. Hi, Claire. Hi, Jane. It's so lovely to be speaking with you, <laughs> even as the world is collapsing. Yes, the world has been collapsing for a number of times in this year, and uh, apparently we're adjusting to this new normal and nobody knows what that is, so we got together today to figure that out. Where do we start? <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with sharing your story. Well, for those who don't know, Claire was one of the three useless co-founders initially, so we, we, we were pretty close <laughs> in that regard, but... She's been lately really killing it with other uh, marketing projects. So tell us more what you're up for today. Sure. So yes, and I, I, I do want to take a minute to say it's such an honor that you have had me on UI Breakfast this many times. This was a, it was a pivotal podcast for me in my early days in like the tech space. So this is just, uh, I don't know if meta is the right word, but it's just lovely to be having this conversation. So yes, as of as of late, the things that. I've really been spending my time on are, you, you did mention Forget the Funnel, which has been a project that's been in the works for several years now. So Georgiana Lottie, who is my my co-founder on that project, Georgiana and I have been, we, we originally launched Forget the Funnel as a free series of just video workshops that talked about SaaS marketing. And that has really evolved over the years and more recently has morphed into a a whole membership setup where we have this searchable library of hundreds and hundreds of resources available for free. And then there's a pro component with even more material available. So that's where my focus has been lately. And then I would say on the consulting side or working with companies directly, I've been spending my more recent engagements working with teams to help them figure out who is the kind of, I don't know if ideal customer is the best way to describe it, but who is it that they are really building for and who are they really trying whose problem are they really trying to solve and then helping the team back up and with that in mind figure out now that we know who our our number one ideal customer is how does our our marketing need to change to better resonate with them where can the product improve to help them solve their problem faster 
and kind of across that customer experience, how do we do a better job at serving this person? Because over the years I've found and I've learned an interesting that there's an interesting pattern that within teams, it can be very unclear when you're in the weeds day to day who you're actually solving for. And the marketing team may think they're speaking to one person and the sales or the product team or you know, pick your other team may have other customers in mind. So helping people really get on the same page about that and build their growth strategy based on that shared understanding of who they're serving has been a lot of what I've been working on lately. How do you feel your personal approach to marketing has evolved? We haven't name dropped, but you were a director of marketing and deploying number two Calendly. That's right. The big, uh, the big, big famous how we software. First met. <laughs> and uh, yes, and now... After all these years, you're working at your own content project, leading other marketers. How do you feel your philosophy has evolved? Mm, that's an excellent question. So way, way back in those days, and I mean, we may have even discussed this on our first episode together. Back in those days when I was in-house, I went into, I, I originally got into that role, assuming I would be doing traditional marketing activities or responsible for tr traditional marketing metrics. So driving new website visitors being, you know, a big one of those and then driving new signups to the product and so on. And way back then, um, I ended up in a situation in which Calendly didn't really have an acquisition. We didn't have an acquisition problem. We had the product was a strong enough product and the way that it operates drove enough of its own traffic that our bigger issue was of all of these signups we're getting, how do we best serve and activate those people so that they become sticky, lifelong users. So even as far back as then, my, my thoughts around what does marketing or growth mean had to shift. That kind of kicked off my realization that even as someone who is in charge of marketing, the, the biggest lever to pull is, is not necessarily just driving more signups. And since then, that, that concept has been I feel like has, has been more and more talked about over recent years. So for example, the ProfitWell team, Patrick Campbell, the founder of ProfitWell, they talk all the time about retention and increasing and improving your metrics further along in the customer journey being far more worth your investment and, and a much bigger payoff than acquiring new customers, for example. Um, but way, way, way back then, that was a very new realization for me. And since then, as the years have gone on, and I've worked with more companies and I've, I've, I've had to kind of help solve growth challenges in different parts of the customer experience. My philosophy has, I'm, I'm trying to like put some words to it, but the first big aha moment was realizing, oh, even though I'm head of marketing, you know, traffic may not be what I'm focused on. What I actually need to focus on is where in the customer experience is the biggest gap. And since then, in working with many companies on my own and also working together with Gia as, as a team of, of growth consultants, we've kind of figured out a, a repeatable process for either doing this ourselves or helping a SaaS team. We've figured out a process for helping them identify, well, where is our biggest gap? Is it traffic? Is it, is it acquisition? Is it activation? Is it ongoing engagement? Is it retention? And so on and so forth. So over the years, I've kind of figured out how to step back and assess the entire customer experience and make smarter decisions around which area needs needs focus, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Let's focus on why we got here today. Mm -hmm. And 
we do have your advice uh, at Usualist. And in spring, when things have been, you know, unfolding and folding back and <laughs> unfolding again, we had your advice on how to actually deal with this new problem of uh, of the old marketing becoming irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And that was to go back to uh, to the drawing board uh, to do some customer research mm -hmm. with the people who have signed up since the crisis started, etc. So um, could you give us an overview of what your framework is for dealing with this problem of marketing after the word is collapsing in front of our eyes? <laughs> yes, absolutely. And you're right, we, we did get the opportunity to chat about this as a small group. So I'll try to kind of reference back to that. And I also have a number of other SaaS companies I've worked with since then to solve the same or to figure out how to address the same challenge. So I think the, the number one place to start is, and you and I chatted about this a bit before we hit record, but the number one place to start is probably to acknowledge that your product has has likely fallen into one of three buckets. So, and you observed this as well, Jane, there's the, all of our business has dried up overnight bucket, and we have no idea what to do because we feel like we're just flatlining. There's a, we're seeing a slowdown, but it's not you know, it, it's not it's not horrible, um, but we do need to address the slowdown in some way. There's a third bucket, which is an entirely different problem to have, which is we're seeing more signups more rapidly than we've ever seen. We're seeing so much demand we can't even handle it, and we're our product is not equipped to serve all of these all of these new types of customers. So what do we do? <laughs> so the first step is probably figuring out which of those which of those buckets or categories your business falls into. Because <laughs> each of those problems looks really different, right? Having no having no new signups is pretty terrifying, whereas having an abundance of new signups is exciting, uh, but also problematic because you're you're wasting a ton of growth potential. So figuring out where you stand or which category you fall into is probably step number one. And then, and by the way, stop me at any point if you want to dig into something. But step number two is then identifying is finding kind of the the dividing line between new customers you've gained since the well this even this is a even this is tricky because if you're in that first category where you're getting no new signups this can be hard but if you have the ability you want to find the dividing line between new customers that you have that you have earned since the collapse so whether that's the i mean in in the case of most businesses right now that's the pandemic right but figure out where was the dividing line between people who've become customers since that big event versus people who became customers before. So for example, there's a, a company I'm working with right now, and they serve fitness professionals who, prior to COVID-19, their target audience was largely people who work inside of a gym, training people who go to the gym, helping those people you know, learn how to exercise or hit certain weight loss goals or whatever it might be. And then COVID hit, and, and their target audience mostly lost their ability to make money because all of these gyms had to close. So in working with this team, I've helped them find the dividing line between customers who joined or, or purchased their product prior to COVID and, and afterwards. So we've decided to focus specifically on understanding anyone who became a customer from April 2020 and onward, because there was a clear divide between what those people were experiencing and, why, and, and what problem they may be hiring the product to solve versus everyone who joined prior to that time when the pandemic was not a thing that we were worrying about. So you want to find that dividing line between people who've hired your product to solve a problem post-catastrophic event and pre-catastrophic event. And then 
as best as you can, if you've done any customer research in the past, props to you, uh, I'm, I'm applauding, <laughs> even though you can't see it. If you've not done much customer research in the past, now is your big opportunity. In either case, once you have reached that point of, of figuring out, okay, who's our group of customers who've joined post-catastrophic event? In terms of shaping your marketing strategy, you're kind of starting all over again in figuring out, well, what is the what is the reason people came to us? What did they see so valuable that even in the wake of this this of this new shift in the market or this new shift in how we live our lives, why are they now paying us to solve a problem for them? Because their answer could be significantly different than all of your prior customers. And not only could their reason for hiring your product be different, but the things that they need as they decide whether or not to make a purchase decision could be different. So how they buy could be different. How they decide to stick with you or not could be different. I'm, I'm going to continue with a couple of real examples. So actually, a woman who is is part of the our, our Forget the Funnel Pro membership, uh, she is she kind of she within her very small SaaS company, she holds both the kind of head of marketing and also she's a very significant leader on the, the product side. Um, so she's she's looking at both ends of that customer experience. Um, and she went through this process where she conducted some phone calls with people who became customers after the pandemic hit. And she found out that the the problem people were looking to solve wasn't really that much different. But what was different is how they purchased. So her product ha- typically has end users, and then it has like an account manager who is making the decision to to make the purchase, right? And the end users who previously, like pre-pandemic, typically would sign up and put the product on their own personal credit card or on a work card because they could get clearance for it, now didn't really have that ability anymore because at the top level of the company, budgets had been cut. And so the ability for people to make the purchase now was, was drastically reduced. And so with that information, she was able to go to her product team and her CEO and say, People can't buy the same way. We need to rethink our pricing strategy or offer some kind of new method for people to actually get in and get value, which has triggered a whole chain of events in in their pricing strategy and has allowed them to survive and not just lose all of their business because their old pricing model no, no longer works in this new environment, if that makes sense. Can you go in the details of what particular changes they made? Yes. So they used to really, really emphasize their 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 purchase annual um, option rather than purchasing monthly. So that was one big part of it. They have now changed what they emphasize on their website. So they they emphasize their monthly pricing now so that that commitment is easier. If I'm an end user, so let's think about it in terms of like, I don't want to mention this person's product because I'm not 100% sure they like want this story being shared everywhere. So I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a similar product example. It would be something like, like a Slack right? Like you've got lots of end users in Slack, and then you have one person who has the credit card. One thing that they did is, is really highlight the, the affordability of their monthly pricing so that an end user could go to that, that person with the credit card and say, Hey, this is only 50 bucks a month. I know that we're not in a position to spend, you know, six, seven, $800 for an annual plan, but could we try it out for the next couple of months on the, on the monthly plan? So that has been helpful. They have also made more of their pro feature. I, I can't remember how they ended up doing this, the technicality of it, but they they decided to make their trial period more generous so that people could get into the product and see more of that value in the trial um, than they used to. The trial used to be quite limited. 
Um, and that has also that has also really, really helped with the number of people who actually convert to customers now. And so that making their trial more generous has become not just a not just a temporary COVID decision, but they've seen such such good success with with how much better this trial converts that, that they've decided this is just going to be the new norm for our trial. Um, so that has been a really big a big game changer for them. And they wouldn't have known to do that. They wouldn't have they wouldn't have been able to make that decision without having spoken with customers who converted after the pandemic. One question about the customer research. When things are going on in our lives, like typical customer research involves, you know, sort of bugging people right. for interviews, feedback, etc. And there are moments when you just feel like this is not uh, polite, mm -hmm. not suitable to do that. Mm -hmm. Are there any like quiet ways to learn the same things that you described if if you cannot get your customers on the line right now? That's an excellent question. And I know that that the the topic of how to connect with your customer is really touchy, especially if you you serve a type of customer that isn't prone to like wanting to get on the phone. Well, there's there's many factors that can influence this. I tend to think about it in terms of how the ask is phrased, because this is going to sound very maybe silly and simple, but there is an art to positioning the ask as something that is beneficial to the other person and not like a greedy, you know, I, I'm here to take up your time <laughs> request. So whenever I am reaching out either on behalf of a company or helping a, a you know, helping a head of marketing um, craft this email, um, we spend a lot of time making sure that the language is very much centered around, hey, you know, name of customer, we are genuinely trying to make this experience better for you. We know that COVID-19 has made things very difficult for everyone. And we're trying to adapt how we serve our customers in essentially in a way that's a win for the that that person. And so if you'd be willing to, you know, get on a call for 20 minutes and share and share your experience, that would really go a long way in helping us out. Um, so, so one thing is just being super mindful of how you've phrased that ask. And again, I, I realize that may sound silly, but I have personally been surprised by being the recipient of, you know, a customer survey request or customer interview request in which the ask was just not very thoughtful in which it was like, Hey, share your feedback. Or in some other way, it wasn't shown how it was going to be a, a benefit to me and my life and how I use the product. The other thing that you can do that um, I've seen work well is if you have the, and I, I would, I'd have to go back and find the exact language, but if you have the ability to make this ask of people when they are inside your product, right? So you're top of mind and you're not just another name in their inbox. Someone I know who's a, a, also in a head of growth role, his language around this ask as a kind of like a, a, a modal inside of their product was incredibly effective. The language he used was something along the lines of like, do you have five minutes to influence the design of our product? So it made people feel special, right? Like empowering, empowering, <laughs> right. And he saw an incredible response rate to that. And when people said yes to it, it opened a very short, I think like four question survey. It was very brief, but right. The ask around it was not Hey, we we need your time. Hey, like, can you please help us? But it was re it was flipped on its head and phrased as you have the opportunity to improve this experience. You have the opportunity to like decide or help us decide the best way forward. And that can be surprisingly effective for how little that tweak is. 
We have found it uh, helpful to combine the ask for customer research with some kind of nice tea mm-hmm. that you can do to your customer, in which uh, totally. very much aligns with the idea of the generosity that you mentioned. Right. So we, for example, we identify the customers who belong to the suffering industries and we got in touch with them and provided applied a discount right. without asking and then that provides a natural path into into further conversation doesn't it totally there's a there's even a name for that um that sweating of the feel <laughs> it's it's like it's like like the the reciprocity theory or something i i have to go google it but there's a there's a <laughs> there's a proven like human tendency to if you have received a favor to then feel not only not only more um positive toward that person but but you also feel like oh well if they took the time to do this for me then then yes i have half an hour to do this for them and so i mean the approach of proactively applying that discount is a fantastic way of going about it i've also in the past i haven't tried this anytime recently so i i can't say how effective it is in 2020 i have in the past used the offer of like hey we we're happy to in thanks for your time provide a you know $100 gift card to XYZ company um i've an even an even cooler approach that i've seen other companies take or other heads of growth take is we're happy to donate $100 to the charity of your choice um, yeah that's my favorite too yeah 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 that <laughs> one's brilliant i have not tried that personally but if i were in a situation in which you know, a team was trying to figure out what incentive do we provide? That's, that's what in, in this time period, that's what I would felt I'd vote for. <laughs> I also want to share a story of what we did at users list in spring. When, when the pandemic hit, we did this help founders initiative right. when we provided free sponsorship for fellow founders. And since it's good cause, then you're not shy anymore to speak out loud. Right. And you can actually draw the attention to yourself because it's a good one and we did wrap up the program after maybe like uh, maybe four to six months um because it was a lot of work to Mm -hmm. connect founders and uh and podcasters but and we cannot measure the influence of that either because it's very very ethereal but we're very happy we did it um, nonetheless you bring up something i think is noteworthy here i mean user lists and this is this is just so this stems from your and Benedict's own personalities, right? Like the, the culture of a company is 80% the, the founder's personality. <laughs> there's, there's statistics on that somewhere that I, I, I read recently. So much of this just stems from who you are as good people. But that's another major, major uh, thing to keep in mind in terms of you know, m- marketing when the world is collapsing. Now more than ever, it's so critical to in terms of what you put out into the universe, it's so critical to read the room, so to speak. As an example, in the time that we are recording this, and, and this is applicable when there's any major event, but in the time that we are recording this, for example, like the US election is approaching, and this is going to be a very fraught year. And we don't have to talk about that election, but that week, for example, would be a great time for companies to maybe pause their their you know pre-scheduled social media feeds, for example, or maybe maybe pause your ads for just like a couple of days because you're entering people's environments during such a fraught time. At least, I mean, I, I can say that as a as a U.S. citizen. I know that doesn't apply everywhere, but but the idea of being very very mindful of the fact that people are under so much stress right now is just that's the de facto that we have to kind of work within when planning a marketing strategy. It's 
you are likely to face more criticism than ever with tone deaf marketing marketing tactics or, or marketing messages right now. So that's something to be mindful of. We had a great opportunity to understand that in the beginning of the summer mm -hmm. when we had the Black Lives Matter right. movement and all the events in the US. Right. I'm under I'm not a US citizen and I'm not qualified to describe that. But generally speaking, what have you learned as a marketer observing how different companies and people and influencers behave in that situation? Oh, man. Retrospectively. We'd really love to hear your opinion. Sure. I, and working for myself and, and, you know, being someone who fits into a lot of mainstream conventional norms, I am a white person, I am a straight person, I am abled, et cetera, et cetera. First, I, I just want to acknowledge that, like, what I'm about to say comes only with great privilege and not everyone is in this scenario. But when we were in the time period of the spring and the early summer in the US and there was yeah Im immense unrest and there still is immense unrest around how people are treated in the, in the US based on their race, that was a time in which I felt, and Gia and I talked about how to, how to approach this, we felt able to speak up and say, we we strongly we strongly believe black lives matter and we are going to donate to the black lives matter organization in the US because we we want to actually put some of our money where our mouth is you know i didn't even take time to look at our unsubscribe rates when we sent an email explaining that because i didn't really care but it was really incredible to see and again a not everyone has the ability to to make that kind of statement because it may cost them their job it may cost them their safety and so on but it was really incredible to see the the response from companies that did take time to stand up and say, this is important to us. And this is how we are going to take meaningful action in this moment. The choice to do that as a founding team is itself marketing, in a sense. It's polarizing. And I'm sure it has certainly cost people subscribers and customers and so on. Uh, I know it, I know it has done that. But if you if you are at a company or if you run a company and you have the ability to be able to make a statement about the way that your beliefs impact how you run your company, that is that is really, really powerful marketing right now. Thanks so much. That was a very thoughtful explanation, I don't know, advice on how <laughs> to do this. <laughs> Let's talk about different types of content production, because clearly the, the whole world has gone into podcasting mm -hmm. and webinars and, yeah. and etc. On the other hand, as a podcaster, and I have uh, I have confirmed this sentiment with fellow podcasters, we have experienced a solid thirty percent dip in downloads wow. for the entire like uh, April and onwards, and it's just been in this August and September that we started to climb out of that really trove sorrow, and uh, that's because people used to you know commute, go to gyms, do things, and they just overwhelmed right. When when that started, I, I watched this drop <laughs> happen and I was like, let's just keep going and uh, ship for the for the loyal mm -hmm. audience who's listening to us. And then, you know, who comes out of the other side is stronger. Mm -hmm. I wonder what's your opinion about, you know, the formats, whether we should all do podcasting or not these days, whether there are enough webinars, definitely Zoom fatigue. What else do you have to say on that? Oh, man, that's a phenomenal question. Not being deeply experienced in the world of producing a podcast, I hadn't known that that podcast producers were seeing this dip. But as you described this, like the scenario people are in, it makes a ton of sense. I don't, I don't have a you know a, a drive to an office anymore, or a train ride to an office, or a bus ride, or whatever it might be, and I don't need to 
drop my kids off at school, anything of that nature anymore. It's really hard to say what the best format is. I, I think you're absolutely right. People are, and I can say this from personal experience and also having seen this conversation float by on my, on my Twitter feed from a number of people, um, Zoom fatigue is, is totally real. So what I'm going to say is, is very much like my opinion, but this isn't advice. I'll come back to the advice part in a second. I have found myself really diving into audio books as a way to absorb or as a way to gain new information and not be required to sit at my computer and, and like look at a screen for another hour. I will turn on an, turn on an audio book and listen to it while I'm getting ready in the morning or when I am, you know, taking the trash out or like going on a walk. Uh, right now it's, it's the weather has cooled off here. And so it's nice to be outside again. It's not super sweaty. So I have found that format really beneficial uh, personally in terms of producing new content. Audio over video is something that uh, is really beneficial right now. But again, that's all that's all opinion. Where I would actually start if I if I was trying to explore like okay, how does our content need to change in light of the pandemic? I hate to be a broken record, but I would totally put together a quick survey and ask my audience, like, what do you actually find valuable now? Like, how do you prefer to ingest content? Do you prefer to read? Do you still like video? I would throw this back to the people who are the most loyal followers to see how their lives have changed. So sorry to say, go learn from your customers again. That was <laughs> probably a boring answer. <laughs> but that's right. It's start. a super fun coincidence because after we record this i have prepared a survey for for the listeners that i'm going to send out and the last one last time i did that was like three years ago probably so it's like big state of uh, my subscribers kind of survey and we're gonna i'm gonna ask all these questions about podcast consumption and everything because clearly that's a very very important way to learn from from people directly i'm i'm very interested in what you learn what you take away from that and we're, I mean, in terms of forget the funnel content, we are, and we chatted about this briefly before we hit record. We are just now experimenting with what other formats might people enjoy digesting our content in. We, we ran a Twitter, we ran a Twitter poll asking this question, like what, what format do you prefer your content be in? But the Twitter poll wasn't super helpful. It wasn't our target audience. It was just, you know, anyone who follows us on Twitter and the results were they were very divided. Like we didn't get a conclusive, obvious number one. Um, so I think the fact that you're asking this of your of your true listeners and your true subscribers should be way more beneficial <laughs> than a random Twitter poll. In the beginning of this episode, we have been uh, discussing the the steps of your framework. Mm -hmm. Have we covered covered all of the steps? So if we were to cover all the steps, I would, I would probably ramble on <laughs> quite a bit longer. But <laughs> we left off at learning from your customers, either by getting on the phone with them or running a survey. Now, there are very specific questions that I prefer to ask very much around what was happening that you know, led you to seek a solution like ours. And when you found ours, like what, was, what, what mattered to you in that process? Like What were you looking for? What were you evaluating? Um, and then when you were making the decision to buy, talk to me about what that looked like. You know, did you take out your own credit card? Did you have to get approval from someone? Really what, what we're trying to learn in this process of speaking with customers who have become customers post event, whatever that event may be, is how does, how does buying look different for them than buying looked for everyone pre event? 
from there, you can begin to then essentially like the way that we do it is to take that information. And I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it's not a revolutionary concept, but we customer, we turn that into a customer experience map. So we essentially try to figure out roughly what are the major phases someone goes through um, when they are now in this post, in this post catastrophic event world, when they are looking for solutions, how they buy and so on. Um, the number of stages of buying can look different or what, what criteria they use to evaluate a solution can look different. Um, I'm trying to think of another good example. Oh, a great example is a software company we began working with in February, maybe. So it was prior to all of, it was, it was just prior to everything that 2020 brought us this year. We were working with a company that was selling to fairly, they were point of sale software for restaurants. Um, and, and when a restaurant or a, a restaurant group, so like a, a, a company that owns many restaurants, when a, when a restaurant group is considering getting rid of their old point of sale software and replacing it with new point of sale software, that is a, it's kind of what I casually refer to as like, that's, that's not a decision to like buy a pair of sunglasses. That's like deciding to go through like major surgery. It's, it's a huge process. It takes forever. You have to retrain everyone on the team. Like the sales process of POS software is, is like long and messy and complicated. And when the, when the pandemic hit and their target audience basically just like restaurants could, restaurants had to close, right? Nobody has money. No, nobody has money to think about like replacing their, their POS system anymore. What we, what we did in that scenario was basically identify, we, we worked with the company to identify, well, we're probably not going to sell. We're not, we're probably not going to be able to sell your entire software platform right now. It's just like your, your market is dried up. So within the restaurant space, what is a problem that people are clearly experiencing that has been caused by this event? And how can we change how people use your software to adapt? So what we did was, was zoom in on the types of problems that had been caused by COVID-19 for, for restaurants. Um, and for a lot of restaurants, it was, it was, it didn't have to do with a point with, with point of sale software. It had to do with figuring out how to do online ordering for the first time. And so what we did was help this company basically kind of repackage a very limited set of their features that were around setting up a, a website and, and offering online ordering. And we, we mapped out a new customer experience for just that part of the software. So we, we basically kind of like, from a technical perspective, I'm, I'm making it sound very simple, but I obviously like pulling apart your feature sets is, is, is a complicated process. But they kind of like, they kind of gated everything that was, that was complicated about the product and they only made available this this much simpler set of features we set up on their website a new freemium tier so essentially like if all you needed was to figure out how do, how do you help your restaurant you know start offering online ordering for the first time you could use this product for free and we made the essentially we made the bet that once companies once we come out of covid world or once restaurants are allowed to open up again We'll have a foot in the door because all of these restaurants who are using our free our free product or our free limited feature set now know who we are and have a, a foundational relationship with us. And in the next six, eight, 12 months, we can reach back out to those people and say, okay, 
now that things are slightly more back to normal, let's talk about all the other things that we can help your restaurant do. So I'm not sure if that perfectly answered the question. Uh, but if I had to kind of like pull out the the steps involved there, it was figuring out post COVID in this scenario, how are people buying? And if they're not buying at all, what problem can they solve? What problem can we help them solve in, in a, maybe a free or a lower price capacity? And then we rethought what the customer experience had to look like in that new scenario. And in terms of marketing, it was little tiny tests. It was putting up a landing page for this new free tier and seeing if this was interesting enough for people to want to sign up, which they did. And then it was creating a kind of a proto product experience where all the, all the, the most important functionality was kind of hidden away and all that, all that was left was the most basic functionality. And it was slowly adapting each step of that customer experience to fit people's new needs and new reality. I feel like I went way bigger than marketing. I don't know if that was too much, but <laughs> of course, how can it not involve product transformations right. if the old product right. is not needed by people, right? Right. One of the most spectacular examples is uh, Tito by Paul Campbell, mm. and they they sell, they are selling ticketing tough software, and like overnight, their business went from hero to like zero sales whatsoever, oh. and. In a frame, a time frame of like one month, they built a new product, a platform for online events called Vito, mm. and I think they're doing fairly well now. So we should all ask them how they are. But uh, that was spectacular. I can't even imagine what kind of stress Paul went through. And we had him on the show here when we talked about that in episode one sixty five. We're gonna link to that if, in case everyone <laughs> wants to hear the full story. <laughs> I, I think. You summed that up really nicely. In a chaotic world or in a world that has been affected by a major event or a series of major events, it's a lot bigger than just thinking about how does our marketing need to change? It has to be a conversation about how does our marketing and the, the experience with our product need to change? It can't be we just like we, we just come up with a new message and sell the same thing. There's, there's got to be a bigger conversation around that entire experience someone has with your company. Are there any resources, blog posts, webinars, or your own resources on the topic of, you know, crisis kind of marketing that we could link to so that people can For sure. uh, watch or listen more? Absolutely. So there are a couple of different things. There's a great Twitter thread that that April Dunford tweeted, like mid mid everything, like right right as everything was shutting down due to COVID across North America. So she she put out a great Twitter thread that that conveys these ideas very eloquently. And I'm glad to go find <laughs> find that. We also on Forget the Funnel recently did an uh, an interview with Asia Asia uh, Matos Arangio, and she shares a story of a company she was working with, and they were also in a situation where their traffic just and and their new signups just dried up overnight. Uh, and so her story about how she helped the company bounce back from that is really really interesting. Um, so I'm glad to share both of those two resources. Claire, thanks so much for joining us today, for sharing your wisdom, insights, recommendations. That's hugely helpful. We're going to do our best so that this episode goes live before <laughs> the elections in the United States so that some of the advice can be still very relevant. <laughs> It'll be very interesting to see. Yeah, everything we've chatted about is applicable after any major event changes what's going on in your market. But, but yeah, I, I recognize that 
this conversation is especially timely <laughs> around major things happening in the U.S. as of 2020. <laughs> but everything we're discussing applies cross bound, like cross border, and it applies across across time to other you know future events that may occur as well. Where can people find more of yourself personally and uh, forget the funnel and everything else you do online? Sure. So Twitter is the best place to find me personally. I tweet a mix of SaaS growth related things and then also a mix of my own opinions on personal events because again, I I have the luxury of doing that. So it's a mixed bag and I very much enjoy having conversations there. And then professionally, forgetthefunnel.com is probably the best place. And our free Forget the Funnel membership, I brushed over this briefly earlier, but includes a, a resource library of hundreds of different interviews and workshops and tools and templates related to growing a SaaS business. And it also includes access to join us on monthly live Q&As where we answer real-time people's questions about SaaS growth. So those, those are really fun. And then we do have a, a pro component as well that actually contains a, a breakdown of the process we use that you and I have been kind of... We've, ch- we've been chatting about the theory here on, on, this, on this episode, but breaks that down more concretely and includes a number of other cool things. So forgetthefunnel.com is probably best professionally. But if there's any, like, any aspect of this conversation that would be fun to take to Twitter, I'd totally encourage that. Twitter conversations are usually a pretty good time. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks again, Claire. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you. You too, Jane. And again, thank you so much for having me on and and letting me ramble again. (laughs) Our great pleasure. (laughs) 